I have really been enjoying our study through Luke. It's been a lot of fun. I think it's been amazing to see how relevant it is, uh, how it even speaks to things we're seeing nowadays in our culture. But if you if you haven't with us, if you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through the gospel account of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke. We've been working through it, going super fast. I say that joke because people may disagree. But we've been going through it. We've worked through the events that surrounded the, the birth of Christ, the angels foretelling of this mighty Messiah figure, the king who brings salvation of the Lord. We went through that. And then we saw these prophecies from Mary, from Zechariah, that confirmed this. We saw John the Baptist come on the scene, coming before the Lord, preparing his way, speaking of judgment. And then we saw Jesus baptized. And we looked at his genealogy that goes right back to Adam, that he is for all peoples. We saw how the Holy Spirit led him into the, the wilderness for 40 days, that he became the echo of Israel for 40 years in the desert. What Israel couldn't do, Jesus did. He was victorious. We saw that. And then it moved on, and we saw Jesus in the, the synagogue of Nazareth. And he proclaimed and announced that he is bringing this new age that Isaiah speaks of. Jesus says, it is fulfilled. It is here. The Messiah is here. The King is here. The year of the Lord's favor, the preaching of the good news. And the people did not like that. And then Jesus talked about Elijah and Elisha and how sometimes God's blessing passes over the Jews and goes to the Gentiles. And they were upset. They rushed him out trying to kill him. <laughs> then we saw, I think two weeks ago, Jesus healing uh, a bunch of people. One of them was Peter's mother-in-law. But then Jesus kept on saying, my priority is to go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God to all the other towns. And he was focused on that. And we saw that the word of God is powerful, and it was the priority of Jesus', uh, Jesus ministry. And then last week, we saw three different events. And highlighted within them was the depth of our depravity and the height of God's grace for those who confess the depth of their depravity. We also saw last week, and maybe I didn't really bring it up as much as it was here, the beginning of the resistance against Jesus. The beginning of the resistance. And we see it with the Pharisees. They did not like that he was claiming that the sins of this guy was forgiven. They did not like that he was doing these miracles, and they did not like that he was eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And maybe, and I wonder, maybe they're upset. Because they're hoping that this man, who is very well known, who is doing miracles, was going to be like them. Was going to be kind of on their side. And kind of, hey, let's have him join our group and we'd have a, a quite the figure. But clear, Jesus was not running in their group. And so Jesus here begins to emerge as this controversial figure. People want to kill him. We already saw it in, in, in Nazareth. Kind of like John the Baptist, his cousin, the godly troublemaker, if you remember us going through that. Jesus being opposed and resisted. And if we're honest, and I'm very honest, change is often resisted. We don't like change, right? Who likes change? And we resist it. And we often resist the change from God that he's bringing in our lives, whether that be a new stage of life, a new school that you're going to, your kids growing up and moving on, maybe a change in jobs, a change in friends, a change in priorities. Or a change in a sin that's always been in your life. And we tend to resist this change from God. 
In this section, you'll notice that we're jumping uh, end of chapter 5 to chapter 6. That's because this is one section. So don't forget, uh, God's Word is inspired. The chapter breaks are not inspired. Those were added later. Later, And sometimes they're in horrible spots. Like this is a horrible spot to put a, a chapter section. Because this section comes, comes together. And what brings it together is the resistance against Christ. Jesus is being resisted. And you will see it specifically by the Pharisees. He's breaking this new age, this messianic age, the new covenant, and he's being resisted. And so the main idea that I want us to get and hear through this all is this. Do not resist the Lord Jesus. Do not resist his lordship. He is king. He is the Messiah. Do not resist him. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you might already have it open. Flip to, to chapter 5, verse 33. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, there's a Bible right in front of you in the pew, and it'll be on page 809, starting at page 809, if you had those. And so it opens up right here, verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John, they fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make when he gets fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in those days. So this opens up having to do with fasting. Now, fasting in that day in first century Judaism was a highly regarded act of worship. In fact, the Pharisees they made it a routine. They fasted twice a week, uh, most often on Monday and Thursday, a, a weekly routine. And so this was very well, very well. Help up. Even disciples of John the Baptist, they fasted. In other places in the New Testament, we see uh, Apostle Paul, other disciples fasting. But the real issue isn't fasting. Or at least Jesus responds with an answer far more than fasting. He gets to it. So he brings up a, a question concerning a wedding. He asks, hey, if the guests are at the wedding and the bridegroom is there, are they fasting? The grammar in the question and the common sense indicates, no, no, they're not fasting. This is a time of celebration. It's a wedding. People are getting married. The groom is here. Let's get after it, right? It's a wedding. Who fast at a wedding? And Jesus says that the days are coming when the bridegroom won't be here, and then they will fast. So Jesus is given this, this, uh, this picture between two different time ages or days. Bridegroom is here, they don't fast. When they're gone, they will fast. And the thing that it pivots on is the presence of the bridegroom. And we'll see later, that is Jesus Christ. He's the groom. He's the bridegroom. Everything pivots on him. So what is Jesus getting at? In the Old Testament, marriage is often tied to God's people, and many times in the prophets, to this messianic age. Look at Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Hosea, Jeremiah. It's all over this picture of marriage. So Jesus is saying the Messiah is here. Things are different. And if you're like me, well, that's a lot to get out of that one question. Thankfully, Jesus elaborates and moves on to a different picture. And it helps us understand this a little more. And so look at this. He says, verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears. Who sows here? Does anyone sow? So I could kind of understand this one. Uh, does anyone else like, yep, it happens to me with new clothes. I know Casey always sews my jeans because they always rip. 
But anyway, so so I had to learn about this illustration because I'm not a sewist or whatever. Here we go. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new. Why would you tear from the old one, the new one? Anyway, and he says, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Then he moves on to another picture. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old skin. Keep 39 in the back of your head. We'll come back to that. But you guess it's two pictures, right? Garments, wineskins. Garments, wineskins. And the point of them is the same. The new does not mix with the old. If you do, you'll damage the new and the old. The new does not go the old. New garments don't get stitched with old garments. And the, the new wine does not go into old wineskins because the new wine will ferment and the old wineskins will be brittle and they'll burst open and the wine will spill out. So the point is, the old and new do not mix. The question then, well, Jesus, what is the old and the new? What are you talking about? And we remember from the, the marriage picture, it all pivots on the bridegroom, the presence of the bridegroom, that is Jesus Christ. So what he's talking about is what he's been talking about this whole time. The Messiah is here. The messianic age is here. What he said with Isaiah in the in the city of Nazareth, that this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here it is. The new age, the year of the Lord's favor, it is here because the king is here. And Jesus says that the, the old, let me say this. So the new is this new age, the new covenant that Jesus brings. The old is the old covenant. But let me make a, 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 a significant point. The old is the Mosaic covenant. Not the Abrahamic, not the Davidic, because both those covenants are fulfilled in Christ. Never, never is the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant ever called the Old, the old Covenant. It's always the Mosaic covenant that's called the Old Covenant. And that's what Jesus has come to fulfill. And he says that you don't mix the two. He's not saying that the Old was, uh, he, I'm here to fix the Old. That's not what he's saying. If you remember in Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, nor not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus said, the old covenant has been pointing to me the whole time. I'm here to fulfill it. And I'm bringing a new age, a new covenant, and so that the old is, is, is no more. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, has been replaced with the new that's what he is saying. And he makes it clear. The old does not mix with the new. And so, let me break. So that's what we have. Jesus is saying the new is here. The old cannot mix with the new, which the Pharisees are very uh, intended on. The old is here to stay in their mind. And none of this should be surprising. None of this should be surprising for us. Because this new age of salvation that Jesus, our King, our Messiah is bringing, is exactly what the angel Gabriel told Mary. It is exactly what the Spirit through Zechariah prophesied. It's exactly what the angels told the shepherds in the fields. It is exactly what Simeon declared in the temple when the boy Jesus was there. It is exactly what Jesus announced in the synagogue of Nazareth, that the year of the Lord's favor is here. It is what Jesus preaches 
where he goes town to town, the good news of the kingdom of God, the Messiah King is here and he's inaugurating his age. So this should not be surprised to us, especially as reading this, because this has been what all Luke 1 through 5 has been about. This new Messiah, this King is bringing this new age, is here. And in fact, this old, uh, this, uh, this new age has been talked about all throughout Scripture. Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, God told him that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. And if you remember back in our study of Galatians, Paul tells us specifically that the offspring of Jesus Christ, I think it was Galatians chapter 3, is Jesus Christ, and it's through him that all the nations will be blessed with salvation. And even further, Genesis 3, if you remember, right after Adam and Eve fall to sin, and Jesus is, uh, not Jesus, I'm sorry, God is pronouncing these curses, he says to the serpent that her offspring, being Eve, will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. A picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ is coming, he's going to crush your head. And so none of this should be surprised that this Messiah, this King is here, and he's bringing new. He's coming. And he says he's here. And so in Nazareth, he says, I'm here. And they do not like that when he came. So that the Messiah Jesus is, says the old is past and the new is here, and it's exactly what happens. If you look at the immediate context with me, the two scenes we'll see on Sabbath, we'll see the authority of this Messiah shown over the Pharisees' um, tradition, their rules. We'll see, uh, turn with me to, if you look at Luke 6, why do you look at me? Look at the Bible. Right after these, the passage we're at, Jesus then instates his apostles. This Messiah then, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, and I'm not inaugurated, but he, he, he institutes his apostles. Then right after that, this Messiah with this new age, he goes to the Sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and he preaches about this new age. And this is all set up, that the, the king is here. So we prophesy about this exactly as we talked about all in Luke. Now he's here. He announces it in Nazareth very clearly. He's going from town to town, preaching that the good news of the kingdom is here. Then we see that his authority, we'll see his authority is Lord here. And then he, he brings in his apostles, and then he starts teaching about this new age even more. And so we have the Lord Jesus here. The context is here. And the writer of Hebrews tells us even more about this. And so I actually want us to jump in this because this is important. That this is what the Hebrews informs uh, the book of Hebrews informs us that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was always meant to give away to the new covenant. In fact, the old served as a copy and shadow of things to come. This is from Hebrews 10. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of a true form of these realities. And if you're interested, I won't take time. Look at Hebrews 8, chapter uh, 8, chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 9, verse 9, and then verses 23, 24, chapter 9. They'll say the same exact thing. The Old Testament has been pointing to this Messiah King to come. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 8. I do want to touch on this. Turn to Hebrews 8. I'm sorry if you're using the, the church one. I don't have the number written down on the page. But go to Hebrews 8. And this is in the context of the writer of Hebrews. Talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And this is important. Because as Christians, this is our heritage. Our spiritual heritage. This is our heritage. This is our history. And so chapter 8, verse 6. The writer says, I'll give you a second to, to turn there. Chapter 8, verse 6 of Hebrews. 
he writes it best. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then he quotes Jeremiah. I think this is the largest Old Testament section quoted in the New Testament. It's right here. I'm going to read it. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which, that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them all the land of Egypt, the old covenant at Mount Sinai. For they did not continue my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. And in verse 13, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Refer to the old covenant. The Old Covenant was always meant to point to this Messiah King who is here. We read this in Galatians. I keep on going back to Galatians because it was a great book to, to leap off of. Galatians 3.24, Paul writes, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law pointed to Jesus Christ so that we can have salvation in him. So let me bring it in here. I know we went through a lot there, but we have the Old Garments, the new garments, the old skins, the wine skins, the bridegroom fasting when he's he, not fasting when he's here, fasting when he's gone. These difference in days. And this is what Jesus is saying. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is fulfilled in Christ. That was the old shadow and pointed to. Jesus has come and he's fulfilled it in him. He's bringing the new covenant. In a complete sense, Jesus completely fulfilled the old covenant on the cross when he died. In a, in a different sense, the old covenant was completely done. The writer of Hebrews, when he says it's about to vanish away, he was writing before 70 AD. It was during a time when these Jewish believers were tempted to go back to the temple to offer sacrifices, to go back to the same way they have been doing. They were tempted. And all the time the Hebrews are saying, don't go back. That's done. Jesus is here. 70 AD, it was done. The Roman general Titus came in and besieged Jerusalem and just wrecked it. If you remember, Jesus prophesied about uh, not one stone of this temple will be on top of each other. It was exactly true. It was absolutely destroyed by the Romans. With all that being said, thank you for following with me if you've been with me. Jesus, the King, is here. He is the Messiah. He is Lord. But as I said... That the main idea here is do not resist the Lord Jesus. And I say that because that's all we see here. Some people do not like it. They do not like that Jesus is Lord. And we read that. Verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine deserves new. For he says the old. I'm sorry. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. And no doubt immediately he's talking about the Pharisees. They do not want the new. They like the old. They were unwilling to face what God is doing here. And try to put their put yourself in their shoes. This is all they knew in life. This is all they knew. This is how they grew up. 
in this old covenant, this system. That's how they grew up. They invested literally decades of years and a lot of money in this system. This is literally their career. Their entire weekly routine is built around the old covenant. It's completely ran by the old covenant. The dynamic of their household is directed by the old covenant. And now comes a Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth, who's claiming to be the Messiah, and he says, the new is here. Would you expect the Pharisees to resist? Would you have resisted? Do you resist right now the Lordship of Christ? And so that's the pattern, and we'll go a little faster here. That's the pattern we see here. Jesus the King is bringing the new, but he is resistant. We'll see the next two scenes. So come with me to, to chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God, and he took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so the context, it's the Sabbath, right? You're not supposed to be working. There's a different thing set up within Scripture. And the Pharisees, who are apparently watching Jesus and the disciples, they're following him, right? Now they're, they're really keeping an eye on him. And what the Pharisees did not understand is that the law, the ceremonial law, was designed to serve people, not master over them. And let me explain that. I specifically see the ceremonial law and not the moral law. Um, for example, and this has, this has been a, a, a pattern in the Old Testament. You should bury the dead. You should give birth instead of being ceremonial clean. That, that trumps the ceremonial cleanliness, if I can say that. That's been the pattern. We see that. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus responds, right? The Pharisees are accusing the disciples. And Jesus responds. And I love that picture. Jesus defends his disciples. He's defending his disciples from the accusations of the Pharisees. Today, Christian, Jesus is defending you from the accusations of Satan. First John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I couldn't pass it up. I just love that picture. Pharisees accusing Jesus. like, no, no, come talk to me. Come talk to me. We'll hash this out. But then Jesus, he says this. Have you not read? And yes, most likely the Pharisees probably memorized First and Second Samuel, what he's about to, to quote from. But what a punch in the gut. Have you not read? Come on. Come on. Have you not read? But so then Jesus, he quotes from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. And in that passage is King David running from Saul. He's fleeing Saul. And David comes to the temple with the priest. And he says, I'm hungry. Give me some bread. And the priest says, we got this bread, but it's only supposed to be for the Levites, the bread of presence. But the priest gives it to, to David, and he eats. And so Jesus' argument is basically, if you condemn my men, then you should condemn David, his men, and the priest that was there. So what are you going to do? And so that puts the Pharisees in a corner. If a human priest permitted David to violate a part of the ceremonial law, 
Can Jesus, the Son of Man, permit his disciples to violate human traditions, the Pharisees' tradition? And then Jesus just laid it on them. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The new era is asserting itself. The king is here. He is the authority, not the Pharisees in their tradition. And I've read this passage maybe a few times. Daniel 7, the, the Son of Man. Daniel 7 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, being God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's Jesus, the King, the Lord, the Son of Man. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's here, and he's asserting himself. I am Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus says. Not you Pharisees, not the old. Not the old. I fulfill the old, and I'll continue. The Messiah came to the Lordship of Christ. And we see the pattern, as I said. Jesus is bringing in the new. He is the Lord. He interprets the force, the intent, and the limits of the law with the Pharisees perverted. But Jesus is opposed and resisted. They've been watching. They've been watching Jesus, the Pharisees. And they accused him and the disciples for breaking the law. And I, don't, I do not think for one second that it was a mistake. Not a mistake, or a coincidence that Jesus referred to this time in David's life. That Saul was trying to push out and resist the rightful King David. Just as the Pharisees are right now pushing out and trying to resist the rightful King, greater King David, Jesus Christ. No doubt there's this echo here. But follow this. This just gets better and better. Next section. On another Sabbath. You'd think Jesus is doing this on purpose. I think he definitely is doing this on purpose. No doubt. So on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. Okay, this is just building. I love this. And was teaching. And a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the men of the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to, good, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said... I'm sorry, I said this, they had fast. And after looking around at them, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And so he did so. And his hand was restored, but they were filled with fear and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So another Sabbath, Jesus teaching, right? That's his priority. That's what he said he's come to do. He's teaching in the synagogue. And the Pharisees are watching him. And the, this word kind of gives a sinister note of like watching out of the corner of their eye. That's what this word kind of gives. So the Pharisees are watching. And then Jesus, he knows their thoughts, and he almost invites, if not does, invites this conflict. Because he sees them with their many sisters. Come here, let's do this. <laughs> let's do this. And so Jesus says to all of them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy? According to the rules of the Pharisees, this man was not in moral danger. He just had a paralyzed hand. He can wait a different day, Jesus. You don't need to heal him today on the Sabbath. He can wait. But in God's law, it was lawful for him to do this. In fact, in Luke 14, another very similar uh, situation, Jesus alludes to Deuteronomy 24, commanding the Israelites not to ignore a person in need, but to go and help them. But I love this. So Jesus asks this, and then he looks around. 
almost like a stare down. Mark's account of this passage, he tells us that when Jesus was looking around, he was filled with anger. And he was grieved at their blindness and their hardness of heart. So he looks around. Then he asks the guy to come here and he heals them. And the Pharisees are put in the corner again, a dilemma. Are they going to say it's unlawful to do good? They could not even get Jesus for work on the Sabbath. He literally just spoke and the guy was healed. What are they going to do? Remember Luke 5.39. Some will not like the new. It is exactly what we see with the Pharisees. They were filled with fury and then they planned, what are we going to do with this guy? What are we going to do? And so we have the pattern. The Messiah King is here. He's bringing this new age of salvation, this correction and interpretation of the law that the Pharisees perverted, destroying the man-made rules. But yet he was resisted. The Pharisees resisted. Now, now this is where I think it's just very cool. Just like when Jesus referred to, to David and his part in his life, and it was a clear picture of what's going on with the Pharisees currently, I think this withered man with his hand was no coincidence. It was a sour act of God. That is because, actually, if you have your Bible, let's go to 1 Kings 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. If we were Jews, we would know the Old Testament very, very well. Because we'd be singing it, we'd be learning it, we'd be repeating it, we'd be uh, memorizing it, we'd know it very well. So in my mind, there's no way that the Jews seeing this in the synagogue would not have thought of 1 Kings 13 when they saw Jesus. Tell the man to stretch out his hand, and then he's healed. So go to 1 Kings 13. It'll be in the back. Uh, 1 Kings 13. As you go in there, this is an account of King Jeroboam, who was an evil king. And this prophet of God, which in the past he's um, referred to as the man of God, comes to the altar, and he prophesies against it while prophesying against Jeroboam. So with, if you're there, look at 1 Kings 13, verse 1. It reads this, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam, who was the king, was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests. He will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. Keep in mind the high places is where wrong worship to the false gods is being done. So he's saying the, the priests will be offered up on, the, on this, this altar who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. Verse 3. And he gave a sign the same day saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king, king heard the saying, this is being Jeroboam, the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Jeroboam, I'm sorry, at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, seize him. And his hand, which stretched out against him, dried up, or withered, if you will, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So there you have it. Isn't that not awesome? So Jeroboam, he's an evil king. In fact, in the previous chapter, chapter 12, 
we learned that it was Jeroboam who set up these high places of false worship. He's the one that instituted the priests that will be burnt that, that the man of God prophesies about. In fact, in Luke, I'm sorry, in chapter 12, we learn that Jeroboam built two golden calves for the Israelites to worship. That's right, you heard that right. Not, I'm not referring to Aaron and Mount Sinai, I'm referring to Jeroboam. He built two, two golden calves for the Israelites to worship. So this is an evil king. And then he learns about this prophecy that this new king is coming, Josiah. And he is going to get rid. He's actually going to offer the, these false priests up. He's going to destroy, he's going to destroy the works that Jeroboam he's been doing. And Jeroboam stretched out his hand against the prophet, says, sees him, and gets withered up. The exact opposite of what happens to this man when Jesus says, stretch your hand and his hands healed. No doubt the Jews would have saw this and thought of this. Jeroboam was resisting this prophecy of this new king who would bring new things and change the old things that Jeroboam's doing. Now you've got Jesus, this new king who's coming, who's bringing this new age, and the Pharisees are resisting what he's doing. And so I don't think it's any kind of coincidence that this is what happens in this passage. So that all comes down to this. To each of you, to me. Jesus has come. He is king. He rules now. He will come again. That is no question. That is the reality. But the question is this. Will you resist him or will you submit to him? Will you resist Christ or will you submit to him? Do not resist the lordship of Christ. Don't resist this forgiveness. Believe that you are forgiven in Christ. Don't resist his conviction of sin in your life. Repent and receive his grace. Don't resist his sovereign direction in your life. Don't resist the trials and the hardships he's leading you through. Rather, depend on him. Depend on his strength. Don't resist the work that he's doing in you. The new desires. The new priorities. Don't resist the truth in scripture that you may not like. That's very inconvenient and very anti-what our culture wants. Don't resist it. Don't resist the passing of the old and the new is coming with Christ. Don't resist God placing your hope in the future of this new heaven and new earth and letting your, your hope fall from this world and putting it just in Christ and Christ's coming. Don't resist God's commands on how you can live in your household, men leading, wives submitting. Don't resist God's grace by refusing to humble yourself before God. Don't resist the lordship of Christ in all of your life. Don't resist God's work like the Pharisees were resisting Christ. And don't have a hard heart. Let me end with this. This is a passage from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence from the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. Don't resist Jesus Christ. Don't harden your hearts. Rather, exhort one another. And that's why I'm so happy that we're here gathering together. We're here to exhort each other while today is so-called today. 
so their hearts are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So Jesus is Lord. Continually describe the old in place of the new, the Lordship of Christ in all of life. 